Hey guys, I'm Tash. And I'm Andy. And you're listening to Bewildered. The podcast where we share stories about the weird, wonderful, and often downright perplexing of the animal kingdom. This is a project that was born out of some of the weird encounters Andy and I have had with animals as ecologists. You're listening to our final episode of this season, part seven of a seven-part series. So welcome, and let's get started, shall we? The title of this episode is... So this episode's going to be a little different. You may have noticed from previous episodes, we, we script a lot and we have our solid points we're supposed to hit and sometimes Andy might struggle over them. But this time we're going to riff a little bit. You could probably tell from the title of our episode that it's all about sharks. So Tash, what is the largest shark you've seen? Uh, I spent some time volunteering in South Africa in a town called Mossel Bay with uh, great white sharks. So probably like... Four metres is probably the biggest. And what's yours? What's your largest species you've seen? Oh, the largest species I've seen was when I was a dive master in the Seychelles and I had a whale shark decide that swimming over me was a totally cool idea. Did you poo your pants? Should I tell you the story? Yeah. Okay, so I was training to be a dive master when I was in Seychelles for a little bit and I was leading a dive and on that dive was a very nice Swiss gentleman who had a, a cool camera and he was really good at listening to me and a very excited Russian gentleman. He'd just gotten a new GoPro and for those of you who've never been diving, when you have a new camera underwater, you cannot stop using it. You want to take a photo of everything. You're taking photos of grades of sand, taking photos of all the coral. So this guy was really excited about his brand new GoPro camera that he could take diving. So we get into the water and it's a kind of a murky day, but I'm still able to lead the dive pretty well. I have these two people with me. And we've come around a, a bit of a corner and we start crawling over a little bit of rock um, and kicking on. And I look back and I see the Swiss man, bright eyes looking at me and then points straight up. And swimming over the top of us was a giant six or seven meter whale shark. It had probably like eight or nine remoras, little sucker fish that sticks to the bottom of the shark. And it was swimming against the current. It was so big, it kind of blocked out the sun from underwater. And instantly, instantly, as soon as I saw that thing, in the back of my head, I heard that inception sound that you see in the movies. And I was so shocked, I kind of wanted to swear. So I started to say something, but instead it just was me spitting out the regulator that was in my mouth to quickly pop it back in. And I looked back and the Swiss man was sending me the okay signal for diving, saying that was really cool. And then I see behind him, the Russian man looking at the ground, taking a photo of some coral. He completely missed the whale shark that swam over. I felt so bad for him. So I quickly tried to clap. I tapped on my tank to grab his attention. We went to try and swim after it. And Tash, you, you can't swim after whale sharks. They're, they're a lot faster than you'll ever be. Tell me more about these great white sharks that you were seeing. Well, first of all, I am really jealous because I haven't seen a whale shark in person, I haven't been diving with them just yet. Um, I'm a stingy person, and when I was up at Ningaloo Reef, I went, no, I do not want to pay $300 to go uh, swimming with them. I think your method of opportunistically coming across one is way better. I spent some time with great white shark in South Africa, and my story is about the first encounter that I had with those great white sharks. Because I, I arrived in Mossel Bay and it's a really big tourist town. Like in summer, it gets flooded with heaps of people and it's like gorgeous. It's nestled 
yeah, on these like cliffs and there's beautiful, you know, sort of white sandy beaches. Uh, so the first day that I arrived, I went to the beach and was hanging out there and frolicking, you know, as you do. And that was my first day, just just relaxing. And the next day was our first day out on the boat. So we were working in conjunction with this cage diving, uh, like tourist operator. So using the cages to help us like sex and identify. So look at spots and markings on the sharks uh, to figure out which individuals were hanging around. So we could look at the population. How healthy was it? Was it being affected by the tourist operations at all? Uh, So we went out on this sort of cage diving boat and we left port and I sort of expected that we were going to go motoring out into the middle of nowhere. Oh, I'll just have a bit of a nap. It'll be like an hour. It's great. But um, no, we actually went like 10 minutes from the port, uh, 10 minutes away from the beach that I was swimming at just before, just the day before. And we came to this place called Seal Island. There's always a Seal Island. Like somewhere, wherever you are in the world, there's always a Seal Island. Um, and this Seal Island had a really big Cape Fur Seal colony. And it smells horrific. Like if you can imagine thousands of seals and what that would smell like. If you've ever in Australia like had those road trains that are like carrying sheep and they roll past you, just like picture that but concentrated. Yeah, it's it's really kind of annoying because underwater these seals are beautiful and you're swimming with them. But as soon as you stick your head up, it is one of the most putrid smells you'll ever smell. And I don't really wish that on anybody. Right. Yeah. So anyway, this island's pretty disgusting, but I was chatting to the crew and I was sort of like, hey guys, like I, I could have sworn I was swimming at that beach just this afternoon. And they're like, yeah, yeah, no, it's a really popular tourist beach. We get thousands of people there in the summer. I was like, oh yeah, um, it's like 800 meters from this seal island. And they're like, yeah, yeah, it's perfectly safe. Because like, even though you have all of these great white sharks that are circling this island, trying to predate upon the seals, like no one's ever actually been attacked at that beach what like no one there's been one attack there and that was a researcher who was putting receivers down around seal island and was you know you kind of accept that risk and he didn't have anything like chain mail or any sort of shark shield or anything to try and protect him he was just in a wetsuit so that kind of happens but i just thought that like blew my mind that it's 800 meters from this really popular tourist beach and they've never had any issues but, you know, people, just perceptions and things, people are really, really concerned about white sharks. It's amazing how in such close proximity we live to a lot of these creatures and we never even know they're there, which is something that we both find absolutely amazing about sharks. But this episode is mostly about some of the other things we find amazing about sharks. So, Tash, you know what viviparity is, don't you? Uh, yeah, so that's the like reproductive strategy where the mums sort of give birth to live young, right? Yeah, exactly. So mammals, things like that, they give birth to live young. They put a lot of effort in, and so you know what, and so you know what oviparity is. This is like a biology test. Uh, yeah, that's the one where they they hatch out of eggs, things like reptiles and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, and would you be surprised to know that some sharks use a strategy called ovoviparity? which is where the embryos that develop inside the egg will then hatch from the egg but still remain inside the mother's body until they're ready to be released. So essentially the shark, female shark will lay eggs inside her and let the eggs gestate there and then they'll hatch and then they'll make their way outside of the mother. Okay, I have heard of all of those, Andy, but my favourite kind, because we're talking about sharks today, 
some species of sharks, especially the really large predatory ones, you know, your tiger sharks, your lemon sharks, grey whites even as well, uh, will do something really weird inside the womb. So when these baby sharks, once they've hatched out of their egg and they're sort of inside the mother's body, they'll undergo something called intrauterine cannibalism. And what that means is that these baby sharks develop teeth inside the womb and you might have something like five or six pups inside this mum's womb and they will slowly eat each other, right? So inside this womb, there's like this battle to the death and quite often you'll only end up with one one last standing, one final pup who has eaten all of its brothers and sisters and survived, gained the nutrients from its brothers and sisters, survived, grown really big and really well developed. So once it actually enters the world, it's ready to predate on fish and other things. Exactly. This goes back to the parental investment episode we did earlier. These sharks want to be able to look after one or two young and give birth to one or two young but they also haven't got a quick ready way to be able to provide nutrients to them so their solution to that is have more fertilized eggs or unfertilized eggs inside the female that the first ones to hatch can feed on and that's a way to provide them nutrients it's just the end result is that you have prenatal cannibalistic sharks which is awesome and horrifying yeah uh, one of the reasons that we love sharks. Like everything else in the 21st century, the Bewildered Podcast is on social media. You can find us on Facebook, just search Bewildered Podcast, and you can find us on Twitter, at BewilderedCast, all one word. We'll be posting links so you can learn more about the animals we discuss in each episode, and you'll also find videos, photos, and a little bit of behind-the-scenes content. So like and follow us and tell us your favourite weird nature story. We wanted to talk about some of the coolest aspects of sharks. Some of the really awesome adaptations that they've developed and honed in to be these amazing predators. Um, And one of my favourite ones is the shark's sense of smell. So most of us know that uh, sharks have an amazing sense of smell. They can actually detect fish extracts in a concentration that is as low as one part in every 10 billion parts of water. So that's a pretty amazing skill. And what they have is these really large olfactory lobes inside of their brains. And yeah, these are just really amazing at processing all of the information that comes through their nostrils or nares uh, on the front of their faces and helps direct them towards their prey. So they basically use it like a sonar. You know, they'll sweep their heads through the water and they'll figure out, okay, where is the concentration of that smell the strongest? And they'll sort of direct themselves towards there. So when I was working with great white sharks, what we would do is use uh, these sort of chummed up, broken up bits of tuna we call that chum it's basically blood and bits of fish and you throw that into the water and it creates a nice slick so sort of the oily bits of the fish on the water and these guys are so good at detecting those kind of smells that they just hone in on it and you know within five minutes of you getting this chum slick going you'll have like three great whites circling your boat which some people would think is a good thing and other people would not you know 
This all kind of depends on the species of the shark though. So some sharks do have a really strong sense of smell, but some others that don't really need to swim around and follow smells don't really have that strong a sense. So if you're thinking about an angel shark that kind of sits on the bottom, covers itself in sand a little bit, and is a more of an ambush predator, it kind of uses other senses rather than smells to really focus on. One of the big ones, vision. The majority of sharks have large eyes and well-developed structures. They can dilate their pupils just like us, and like many mammals, sharks have a tapetum lucidium, which is a kind of crystalline structure in the back of their eye that allows the light to be reflected back to their retina, increasing their vision in low light. So at nighttime or deeper down the water where there is less light, they have this really strong vision and it's quite amazing. Yeah, so you've got species. I'm going to go back to my great whites, but great white sharks really like hunting in low light conditions. So they like to use, a lot of people know about the silhouettes of things on the surface. Um, Yeah, and they like to use that to their advantage a bit of a... Um, a way to hide. Amazingly, I've actually seen great white sharks come up to the surface. They've seen something floating on the surface and it's actually been a bird, right? And they'll come up to attack and at the last second, they'll turn away from it. They know that it's not their prey and they'll actually turn away from it. Um, And there's also other species like, for example, bull sharks, which are another really large predatory shark. And they like to hang out in freshwater and even estuarine environments. So that means that there's a lot of runoff from the land and you get a lot of silt in that. So you get very murky, muddy, low light conditions. And they also need to be really good at finding their way to their prey, even in these really silty, muddy sort of rivers and things. All right, so another amazing sense uh, that sharks have that people might not actually be aware of is that sharks actually have a sense of touch, well, sort of, so to speak. Uh, Like a lot of fish, sharks have something called a lateral line, and this is a canal of hairs that extends from the head to the lobes of their tail, sort of looks like a spine along the side. You can actually see this line on the side of the shark, and as other animals move through the water, they send out ripples, you know, from the movements causing these sort of ripples through the water. And these ripples then move the hairs inside the lateral line. This then sends a signal to the brain and that lets the shark know that something's around them. Something's moving, maybe thrashing in the water around them. Um, And they can use this, you know, in combination with the smell and the sight and things to figure out if there's some prey in the water around them. Yeah, so it's a little bit like a vibration echo map and they feel it through their back, through this lateral line along their spine, which is really awesome. It's absolutely amazing. And As they swim, they can use this lateral line to see how water moves and hits the things around them, so objects and rocks and other things like that. So they kind of get this amazing vibration echo map that the water reverberates back to them and they can still see how far things are away from them without being able to see them or smell them. It's absolutely stunning. But then you have to move on to what is my favorite sense that sharks have. It's absolutely amazing. This is their ampullae de Lorenzini or electroception. Basically, they're small gel-filled sacs that can detect electrical signals from even still fish. Hammerhead sharks have theorized to have evolved their weirdly shaped heads to increase the triangulation ability of their electroreception. They also use this electroreception for navigation. In salty environments, they can kind of sense the magnetic fields of the earth and then other salty environments around them. And this gives the shark an ability to kind of sense the way they should be traveling. It's kind of like a north compass inside their head, just using this electroreception. 
Other animals have magnetite in their head to help them find their way home. And it's an episode we're going to be doing later. But sharks can do it just with their electroreceptive um, organs on their nose. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah, so they also use this when they're so close to their prey that they're actually a little bit scared that this prey might, you know, gouge their eyes out, might fight back or something like that, especially mammals like seals. They've got claws and things. Uh, So at this point, the sharks will either close over a third eyelid, something called a nictitating membrane, um, over their eye to protect it, or something like great white sharks. They don't actually have this third eyelid. So what they do is they swivel their eyes back into this socket in their skull. So when you see photos of great white sharks attacking and you see this sort of white part of their eye it's not actually the eyelid you're actually seeing their skull there because they've rolled their eyes back into it but once they get to this point I mean they don't really have any vision they don't really have smell they don't need it they're so close but it's this ampullae of Lorenzini that at the last minute helps guide them towards their prey they use these electrical impulses to make sure that they're on target I also thought about um just then the the sense of touch is that they actually have uh receptors in their gums so that their teeth when they depress they can sort of tell how hard or how soft an object is and it can help them determine whether it's actually something they want to eat is it a boat propeller or is it a nice squishy seal or fish Um, and that's another way that they actually have a sense of touch is by using their teeth and that sort of brings us to shark's sense of taste so sharks have small pits that line their mouth and they use it to taste things that they bite, much like our taste buds. Um, And this often determines whether a shark will take the meal, eat the fish or eat the bird or the seal or whatever on earth it is, or reject that meal. Something interesting is that I think tiger sharks have a really poor sense of taste because they're known as the great garbage disposal. They found things like license number plates and cans and like all sorts of things that a shark just should not eat inside their stomachs. So tiger sharks are pretty... uh, indiscriminate in their taste. Some sharks, like the great white shark, have a bite and release behavior in which the shark will bite something and then kind of just swim away. And often the sharks will do this when they bite humans. They'll bite the humans and realize they aren't a nice fatty seal and they just kind of let it go and swim away. And it's kind of estimated that this is how most shark attacks result. A shark will just bite somebody and then swim away, but that bite is so dangerous to a person, the person still bleeds to death or loses a limb yeah so you shouldn't really be scared of sharks eating you they only want to take a bite and they're probably not going to be very interested because most of us don't have a high proportion of high nutrient fat like blubber guess that's changing in some countries like australia (laughs) (laughs) there must be some correlation with shark attacks no but the last thing that we wanted to end on is you know something that's really close to both of our hearts is the perception that sharks are dangerous, that they're scary. Both of us have been diving on numerous occasions with sharks and we can say that we just honestly find them so fascinating and non-threatening in those environments uh, unless there's a tuna head dangled in front of a great white shark and you're inside a cage uh, kind of threatening environment. But um, yeah, it's estimated that at least 1.4 million tonnes or 100 million sharks are killed every single year by humans. On average, around the world, there are only 9.5 deaths a year due to shark attacks. If this was a war, we would know who was winning. In Australia, you're more likely to die or suffocate while sleeping or falling off your chair. Okay, well, first of all, that's made me really scared. How many people die and suffocate while sleeping? 
I'm, I'm never going to sleep again. Have you ever seen me sleep on a plane where like my head goes back and my mouth goes open? I honestly think I could drown on my, like, <laughs> in my own spit. You drool hard. It's gross. Too close. We're too close. Some other things that are more likely to kill you than a shark? Um, one of my favorites is that you are more likely to be killed by cows. You're actually 20 times more likely to be killed by a cow than a shark. Move. You're 350 times more likely to be killed by a ladder. Uh, 15 times more likely to be killed by falling icicles. In America, you're 130 times more likely to be killed by deer. <laughs> Those deer, you know, they're pretty terrifying. Oh, this is one that gets me. You are 130 times more likely to be killed by dog than shark. And I love dogs. So, Tash, would you prefer a puppy or a pup of a shark? Oh, my God. Have you seen great white shark pups? I have seen juveniles that are like one and a half meters long and I have to say they are so adorable. There was this one and we called it Baby Shark, Baby Shark, does whatever a baby shark does. Can he eat a tuna head? No, he can't because he's a baby shark. So you saw the Simpsons movie just before that? No, this was 2014. But the reason we made up this song was because this baby juvenile great white shark would like, we were eating apples and we would throw them into the water and this like shark would just come up see the tuna head smell it use its ampullae de lorenzini you know do all the the sensory things and just come and eat an apple core and you're like dude you're a carnivore natural selection you know that guy's probably not gonna last but adorable other things you're more likely to be killed by you're 20 times more likely to be killed by a horse a hundred times more likely to be killed by bees. Six hundred times more likely to be killed by cold weather. All right. Thank you so much, guys, for sticking with us through our seven-part series, Bewildered. It's been great having you along. We've loved all of the social media interaction and uh, you guys liking all of the videos that I put up of me harassing Andy uh, and fun things. Yes, and this is our final episode of this season. Keep subscribed keep listening we might be posting more things later on when tash and i have a little bit more time on our hands and if she has been convinced to stay in this fair country of ours so if you want to go online and harass her into staying that would be really helpful for me yeah so don't forget to follow us on soundcloud guys um and keep following us on facebook and twitter to get all the updates if we do come back and if anyone out there has a spare couple of thousand dollars lying around, we will totally do a second series. Uh, if you make some generous donations, <laughs> that would be much appreciated. Okay, and thank you, and we hope to be creating more episodes soon. The Bewildered Podcast is co-written and produced by Andy and myself, Tash. If you'd like to know more about any of the topics we've discussed this episode, please follow us on Twitter and Facebook, where you'll find much more content. Don't forget to follow us on SoundCloud or subscribe to us in your podcasting app of choice. Also, feel free to leave us a rating as it really helps other people to find us. Our music is by Poddington Bear and thank you for listening. Baby shark, baby shark, does whatever a baby shark does. 
Can he eat a tuna head? No, he can't, because he's a baby sh- Coming to your earbuds. I hope that everyone can hear my voice in their ear holes.